You're listening to Ecotones Now. We're a 100% independent, volunteer-run podcast companion to the award-winning site Environmental History Now, a platform to showcase the work and expertise of graduate students and early career scholars who identify as women, trans, and or non-binary people. I'm Emma Mosswild. I'm Natalie Jo Rose Wilkinson. And we're your hosts for this season, Our Community's Voices. Today, Esma Urukia shares their piece, Bodies and Sexuality in Gilead, a queer eco-feminist reading of The Handmaid's Tale. If you ever wondered what the world would look like as a right-wing, conservative, white supremacist dystopia, then Margaret Atwood's masterpiece, The Handmaid's Tale, is for you. In her well-known novel, Atwood links nature's oppression and women's subjugation by showing the consequences of environmental degradation on women, the LGBT community, and marginalized groups. The Hulu adaptation of the novel, created by Bruce Miller and starring Elizabeth Moss and Samira Wiley, was released in 2017 and has attracted millions of viewers, including myself. While binge-watching all three seasons and impatiently waiting for the fourth one, I couldn't help but think how many acts of cruelty against women, the LGBT community, and marginalized people are actually the norm in a number of societies. It has also made me realize that the show amplifies what queer ecofeminism stands for. Atwood pays special attention to the degradation of the environment in her reimagination of the U.S. as the Republic of Gilead. The story revolves around the deterioration and collapse of the nation as a result of nuclear weapons use, pollution, and other irresponsible actions against nature. Lands became thus infertile, and so did humans. Chemical exposures lead to a huge decline in birth rates, and sterility and deformity of newborns leads to a drastic oppressive change in governance, a new country called Gilead. The new regime in Gilead forced the rare women who were biologically capable of reproducing but have been in unmarried relationships, they were labeled as sinful, to serve as handmaids and carry children to the infertile, powerful couples that were leading the country. In Gilead, there is no such thing as a sterile man anymore, not officially. There are only women who are fruitful and women who are barren. That's the law, Atwood writes. These labels come with a steep price. Handmaids who are unsuccessful in conceiving a child are deemed barren and are sent to work in the colonies. The colonies are areas in the U.S. destroyed by nuclear bombs. On people and on women, as barren and non-conforming people are labeled, are sent there to do the labor work and deadly tasks of cleaning up the destroyed and radioactive environment. A major feature of the oppressive rule in Gilead is the imposition of extreme binary gender roles and the compulsion of heterosexuality, hence the commodification of bodies with wombs capable of reproduction. People are separated based on their genitals. If you can be impregnated, you are a handmaid. Women in Gilead are classified by status wives of commanders, maids, or handmaids. Yet all of them, regardless of their social status, are prohibited from reading, writing, or wearing trousers. 
Freedom and authority are given to white heterosexual men who use this power to kill queer people in the name of God, going as far as hanging their bodies to the wall as a reminder of the punishment for homosexuality. Emily, played by Alexis Bledel, is the one of the characters in the show that plays a huge prize for her sexuality. After being separated from her Canadian wife and their son, she is assigned to a commander's household, where he rapes her in the presence of his wife with the aim of impregnating her. The rape scenes in the show are known as the ceremony, a cult sex, or what I would call rape ritual, where high-positioned men and their wives lay the handmaid between them, and while the wife holds her arms, the commander penetrates the helpless handmaid in order for her to conceive a child for the barren couple. Emily is revealed to be a member of the Mayday Resistance, a secret group that aims to overthrow Gilead. When caught having sex with one of the Marthas, a class of domestic servants in Gilead, the Martha is hanged and Emily faced female genital mutilation as a consequence. The only reason she is not killed was because she had good ovaries. Margaret Atwood took inspiration for The Handmaid's Tale from two major events. The rise of the Christian right in the United States during the 1970s and the 1980s, and the Islamic Revolution in Iran in 1979. It is not hard to see the resemblance between the authoritarian regime that rules Gilead and the divine Islamic law that rules Iran. Gilead's ruler, Commander Joseph Lawrence, shares a number of similarities with Iran's Ayatollah Ruhullah Khomeini. Both men enforced a utilitarian vision of what a state should be, which led both the United States in fiction and Iran in reality to shift from progressivism to fascism. How did Iran turn from nurturing and growing poets like Farooq Farukhzad, whose poetry pushed women's sexual desires to the forefront, to covering Iranian women from head to toe? The same question goes for the fictional story of the United States' transformation to Gilead. Examining the historical context leading up to the Iranian Revolution reveals themes in environment, gender, and governance that are echoed in Atwood's work. A perfect example to depict an anti-essentialist representation of women in Iran pre-Islamic revolution would be the amorous couple painting from the Qajar dynasty in the 19th century Iran. The painting represents two androgynous people who are supposedly lovers. Yes, Iran was as queer as a dynasty can be. So what changed? In her book, Sexual Politics in Modern Iran, Janet Afari shows the normalization of same-sex relationships in Iran and how the end of the 19th century meant the beginning of the war against queer and non-conforming people. The beginning of the 20th century was the time when the perception of homosexuality in Iranian society started to change, a shift exacerbated by regime change and instability in Iran. The discovery of oil in the country in 1908 led to the formation of the London-based Anglo-Persian Oil Company in 1909. This was followed by the establishment of the Pahlavi dynasty after the Qajar one. A few papers have been published where the British involvement in the enthronement of Reza Pahlavi as Shah, as well as the coup d'etat that overthrew him. Michael P. Zerensky, for instance, 
writes thoroughly through the political distress that Iran had gone through during the 19th century and 20th century, with a focus on the period between 1921 and 1926. He shows how Britain always wanted to dominate the country, especially after the establishment of the Anglo-Persian Oil Company, which later on, in 1954, became the British Petroleum Company. Coincidence? Absolutely not. It is no secret that 1953 coup d'etat known as Operation Ajax, which occurred a year before Britain completely took over the oil company, was sparked by the nationalization of APOC. Regardless of the U.S. denial and its involvement in the coup, the result is evident. Iranian rulers were puppets and manipulated by both Britain and the United States to serve financial profits from the oil. Evidently, right after the operation's success, oil revenues for both Americans and Europeans increased from 34 million in 1954-1955 to 181 million in 1956-1957 and kept going up. Reza Pahlavi, despite being the founder of the Pahlavi dynasty, did not remain in charge for as long as he perhaps hoped for. His power came to an end a couple of decades later when he was overthrown by Khomeini. Once Reza no longer served Western interests, his time as Shah came to an end. He was replaced by someone sympathetic to selling oil to Britain and the US, who supported a number of oppressive social programs, including anti-homosexuality and strict enforcement of gender differences. Thus, Gilead became the reality of Iran due to the 1979 Islamic Revolution. Homosexuality at this time became punishable by death and women became enslaved to the Islamic rule. Before the revolution, homosexuality and same-sex encounters were practiced widely in Iran and were rarely perceived as taboo or sinful. In the wake of the revolution, thousands of LGBTQ people have been prosecuted for their lifestyle, continuing to this day. The link between the profit generated from oil businesses and the exploitation of women and oppression of queer people can be traced back to the Shah Pahlavi's refusal to sell oil to Britain and the U.S. and his desire to nationalize it. Despite Khomeini's attempts to overthrow in the Shah and being exiled for 15 years, he only succeeded after receiving support from both countries. The moment Pahlavi refused to abide by the rules that profited the West, he was replaced by Khomeini because this latter agreed to export the oil instead of nationalizing it. Looking back at Iran's history, less than three decades prior to this revolution, the National Iranian Oil Company was founded. During the same year, this company took control over the country's petroleum industry. The 1979 oil crisis occurred to, due to the decline of oil output, which led to a huge increase in oil prices worldwide. These events made 1979 a remarkable year in Iran's history. Heterosexuality became the natural. Compulsory hijab led more than 100,000 women to protest against it, and Earth's exploitation of its most wanted natural resource increased. The interconnection between bringing foreign oil firms or nationalizing the Iranian uh, industry and the freeing of women and sexuality or oppressing both cannot be, be disregarded. When earth is being violated and used for profit, so are women, so are their sexualities.
we're so grateful to our guest for sharing their work with us today. You can find information about them, links to further reading, and a text version of the piece in the show notes. This work was originally published on the Environmental History Now website alongside so many other brilliant and thought-provoking pieces, which you can explore at envhistnow.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at envhistnow. We'll see you soon with more Community Voices. This show is produced and edited by Emma Mosswild and Natalie Jo Rose Wilkinson, with music provided by Natalie Jo Rose Wilkinson and Christine Murphy. Special thanks to Elizabeth Hemateman, to this season's contributors, and to you for listening.